0: The we're going family style deal.
1: Because I want a bite of your Big Mac.
0: And I need some of your Quarter Pops. I'll
1: try your filet of fish
0: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaca bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecka.
2: Hello, dear friends, and welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show where we share thoughts with leading experts, uncover expansive and evolutionary truths to support the path to unity and enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiyaka. This hour we'll be exploring the transformative power of near-death experience. There are few things that teach us as much about life as death or the threat thereof. We tend to go about our lives as if they'll always be there, doing the same old thing in the same old way, wondering why nothing changes. Often, the older we get, the more set in our ways and the narrower our worldview until we devolve into mundania, allowing media to dictate our reality. Yet, some experience a life-changing event that knocks them out of their rut, shattering their reality and opening them to an evolution of consciousness. Our guest this hour is just such a person. Robert Kopecky lived many lives until becoming an illustrator, art director, and animation designer for the New York Times, PBS Kids, and more. His path was punctuated by three very different near-death experiences. After a dark night of the soul, and a decade of study, meditation, and service, Robert's various lives and deaths inspire him to easily pass on the lesson he's learned the hard way. He's the author of How to Survive Death, Life and Death, and his latest, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. He appears online at Gaia, The Mindful Word, soul lifetimes belief net and more and on his blog robert kopecky his website robert kopecky.com robert thanks for joining us on mission evolution
3: well thank you for having me guilda it's a pleasure to be here
2: uh let's let's start with what exactly is a uh, near-death experience
3: well uh, you know it's kind of hard to say what a near-death experience is exactly it's this uh, this moment that happens with people when they are at the point of death, or have, it sometimes it's documented in hospitals, they're, they have flatlined. For other people, it may just be an experience of such uh, sort of uh, grave circumstances that they feel as though their life is ending and spontaneously begin to experience a, kind of an extra dimensional trip into the afterlife, so to speak. Uh, for me, it, they were all uh, kind of crucial, critical circumstances that led to my being uh, my being sent into a, an extra-dimensional world, kind of beyond this. Is the experience that I had uh, different from a dream world? More intense, uh, more, much more uh, realistic, and and much less random. So um, they're all kind of different. They take on different forms and different cultures. Uh, so it's it's difficult to know exactly what they are, other than what I can tell you about my own, which were these experiences of a kind of an extra-dimensional afterlife.
2: Are there consistencies from one person's near-death experience to another?
3: Yeah, there are. I mean, d- despite the differences that, uh, that I was just mentioning, you know, you often will hear of similar motifs and formats, people going through the tunnel to the light at the end of it, or... Emerging into a kind of an Elysium field where they find their, their ancestors or, or deceased relatives, that kind of thing. All three of mine were classic, these kind of classic motifs. My first one was an out-of-body experience, and my second one was what's called a life review. And my third one was I, I was forced back into life, uh, all of which are are common formats for people's near-death experiences, although... The details are often very custom-made, personally or culturally, Um, but the the things that are truly consistent and were in in mind, because having the three different ones made me really question all of this. You know, what made them different? Why didn't I just go to one place uh, if I was dying each time? The things that were consistent, though, about each one were that I had this experience of being enfolded into and supported by this kind of field of expansive, illuminative love, intelligence, a greater mind, a transcendent sense of total connectedness with everything, and an innate understanding of kind of a shared purpose, you know, kind of wrapped up in oneness in a way. I was liberated from all my... All my uh, material constraints, kind of, and I was also very teachable. There was an instructive element in in a near-death experience for me, and for most experiencers, there's some kind of karmic guidance or heavenly instruction, so to speak, that's part of it.
2: So, you know, we're in pretty evolutionary times right now. Things are changing very quickly. Do you feel that your death, near-death experience helped you participate more fully in that evolution?
3: Well, absolutely, yeah, because m- what I experience, what I'm telling you is the, are the consistencies, which I refer to basically in the new book as being heaven, right? This being uh, supported by an expansive, illuminative field of loving intelligence and the transcendent sense of total connectedness and all of that. I call that divine consciousness, because when I, um, when I passed on, so to speak, when I went and in, moved into the afterlife, I didn't die, I still, I still saw everything more or less through my eyes, my own eyes, but I opened up into this greater mind of divine consciousness that I feel informs everything that I feel is fundamental to the universe, really. And it's this consciousness that's coming into our world more and more all the time. It's obvious; every direction you look. That this kind of awareness and understanding and feeling of unity is arising uh, in the world so I can always relate to that in looking at you know the, the craziness in the world there's always the craziness but there's always this underlying spiritual sanity that is growing I think uh, on, a, on a planetary basis
2: do you think that um, it's always been there and we're just opening up to it? You say it's coming into our world, but are, are we really just opening our world to what's already present?
3: Yes, I definitely feel that. It, well, I believe it's totally fundamental. I think that uh, divine consciousness, so to speak, as I call it, is what informs and animates everything that we see. It is essentially the nature of all positive creation uh, that there is. And I believe that it was much better understood by earlier peoples, you know that the uh, indigenous peoples of the of the world were really connected with divine consciousness in a way that I think the forms of our culture have removed us from, and that we're having to uh, kind of struggle to overcome again and come back into that kind of spiritual alignment with uh, the world and with this field of divine consciousness, which I also equate with love, with pure love.
2: What do you think about being out of body that facilitated that for you?
3: Um, the interesting thing about being out of body, and I've, I've divided the new book into three parts, perspective, presence, and purpose, based on each of the three near-death experiences. The first one being this out-of-body experience gave me the gift of perspective, of a spiritual perspective, in that you know when you're when you're knocked out of your body, when you're you're no longer occupying the physical vehicle of your body, it's very difficult to get the genie back into the bottle, so to speak. In my life, it, it certainly was, and for a long time, it led to just a kind of a confusion for me. But after years and and more hardship and this this dark night of the soul that you mentioned in the introduction. I ultimately came around to a spiritual practice that included uh, lots of meditation and service and the like and I was able to realize that gift of perspective gave me this kind of objective loving neutrality I could detach from the pain and struggle of physical of our physical forms and sort of witness the pure spirit coming through people defined by that the package of karmic information that each person is, you know, all your experience, maybe your past lives, things that happened to you in your childhood, the habits that you've grown into and stuff. I witness that now with a kind of a compassionate, um, uh, detachment, you know, the, and which I call a spiritual perspective. I think that, um, I think that's kind of how angels are able to look at us here, right? Struggling through the forms of our bodies that are unfortunately aging all the time and changing, you know. And so being able to witness life with that kind of peaceful detachment in a way makes everything a lot easier. I you know, I'm not I don't have the same horse in the race that I used to have, so to speak, even if it's me. <laughs>
2: So it sounds like it's a form of identifying. I mean, we tend to identify with our restrictions, our roles, etc. But having left that, when you left your body, um, it it changes where you identify. Is that what you're talking about here?
3: Yes, yeah, it does, because I am no longer uh, defined by those kinds of material roles and those ego uh, constructions, you know, who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to be or how other people see me that I, you know, I'm often uh, inventing how other people see me. I don't really know. Most people are concerned more with themselves than they are ever with me, for sure. And so that's a very liberating thing. And in in, in a way, you know, I I had these three experiences. A lot of near-death experiencers will have one and it will change everything for them. I had three, and none of them really worked completely unto themselves well, to we're totally to pick, change everything.
2: We're going to have to pick up on the three on the other side of a short pause. Okay. Robert and I will be back after this commercial break. You're listening to the Mission Evolution Radio Show, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution Radio, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. Remember, past episodes are available on our website, missionevolution.org. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka, and our guest this hour is Robert Kopecki. His website, where you can find out more about him, is robertkopecki.com Robert, we were just about to get into the fact that you've had not one, not two, but three near-death experiences and how they differed.
3: Yeah, and the and the result of each one of them, uh, what I was talking about is that I, they didn't really totally change me. You know, a lot of people will have one, and it will totally change their entire life. Each one changed my life incrementally. I kind of became more and more confused in a way, but it wasn't until I experienced what you might call a death of the ego, right, where I, I came to a place in my life, and maybe as in the cumulative effect of the three near-death experiences, nothing was really working for me very well. And I found myself in a place where everything that I thought I was, this kind of ego structure of my life, you know, the material constructions that I'd built around me, what I thought I was and stuff, stopped working. And at that moment, I became... um, absolutely humble, you know, enough to be teachable. And I think that that's kind of the aspect of the the death experience that our souls require. You know, you have to die to go to heaven. And so in that sense, I think this kind of ego death or being able to let go of all of these structures of material imagination is important and, and really necessary for us to get to that, that place where we can really expand our consciousness into this field of divine consciousness that i'm I'm talking about
2: you know the indigenous peoples for thousands and thousands and thousands of years for their holy people they have initiatory processes that does shatter the ego it shatters uh the identification and it sounds like this was uh orchestrated for you (laughs) whether you wanted it or not why do you think that's so
3: well i think in part it's because this is our our natural technology, you know I, I believe that there is a a vast, incomprehensible spiritual technology at work in in uh, the universe in this world, in our lives. Those indigenous people were much more in tune with it. they didn't have these kind of ego structures of material uh, power, you know the imaginary power that uh, we tend to have. And so, without living in a culture where I experience, the, you know, the kind of ritual death of the ego, like a lot of those tribes and and peoples of the of the past and and present in different parts of the world, uh, you know, being part of our kind of this kind of cultural, spiritual gridlock that we're in here, that there's a lot of uh, spirituality is suppressed a great deal by our media because it doesn't serve commerce particularly well. Um, Because of that, I think I had to go through personally, I had to go through this. It was my karma to go through these things to inspire that same kind of ego death that one might have gotten in ritual in a different culture years ago.
2: Robert, do you remember if you were intending something at the time that might have initiated this for you?
3: Um, If I was intending something at the time of of the each near-death experience you mean or at the time yes. of the dark mm-hmm. the, my dark night of the soul the of, near-death I
2: experiences i it seems to me like um our intent plays a big role in what happens to us even if we have karmic uh predisposition
3: yes and that i mean for me that's what it's ultimately come to mean the three completely different experiences so you know what's up with that why should they be why should everybody's uh, experiences be so different why should Christians encounter Jesus and Buddhists encounter uh, uh, Yama? Uh, you know, or or, or uh, Hindus have uh, Yamraja and Chitragupta read the Akashic book to them. Everybody has these different sort of culturally informed experiences. So they're custom made. They are custom made to the the kind of karma, the you know, the information that we carry into the next life. And so I believe there's kind of a pattern recognition, you know, it's, it's a seamless transformation into the next world. And that's how we realize, um, the the next reality that we take part in. And then when we come back, you know, when we're resuscitated, hopefully, um, we we can only come back and speak about it in the terms that we have with human language, and so we can only report on the forms, the archetypes, the experiences that we've had this way. You know, like I'm talking to you right now about it, and so that I think uh, is is kind of kind of indicates what the custom-made nature of it is of everybody's near-death differing near-death experiences.
2: Well, it seems like what we're doing there is if we leave our body, we're going into the quantum field. We're going into pure energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's a unified place and not linear, and our minds process right. linearly. Mm-hmm. So are we actually grabbing onto the archetypes of our culture to translate the information that we're getting?
3: Yeah, it's that struggle with the duality, right? Divine consciousness, this field that we're talking about, the, the Planck field, or however you scientifically want to I put it. I think of it as something uh, maybe more uh, alive, if that's possible, or or more imagination-based, or something. Uh, everything becomes possible uh, in that experience. You know, everything opens up uh, in a in a total in a field of total potential, uh, sort of thing. Um, so, I, uh, I'm sorry, what was your actual question? We get lost, <laughs> lost there. I lost my train of thought a little bit.
2: Yeah. I was just wondering, you know, as, when we leave our body, we're put in pure energy, which is the quantum right. field. And because the quantum field is uh, more unified and our brains work linearly, are we grabbing onto the archetypical representations of our culture to explain or to translate what we're perceiving at the more uh, unified state
3: yeah it's that struggle with uh with the kind of duality and the fact that divine consciousness is indivisible you know that we still have these kind of ego structures that we're trying we basically i think we're here to get over them in many ways and i think that this is the 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 death experience the soul requires to enter into that pure field of divine consciousness
2: There's another thing you brought up that's very interesting that I've always been curious about, and that's the your life review. Um, What do you think causes that? What's the purpose there?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting because each experience was at a time in my life, and when I look back at it, the nature of each experience seems very custom-made again to the part of my life that I was in. I think that uh, in the the first part of my life, I was living so materially driven by ambition, as we are when we're younger, uh, that uh, that an out of body experience gave me that realization that we are, you know, we're spirits traveling around in these body vehicles. And in the second in the second experience, the life review, it's the same thing. I think my life was shifting more towards meaning, uh, maybe, and something that I needed to realize. Was the, um, was the effect of living in the eternal moment and, and how this moment itself that we're always experiencing is really the only place where we can engage and create and respond to uh, the kind of karmic callings of our life, so to speak. You know, I, I was shown these situations that where I hadn't been present. And so that gift of presence is what I needed at that point in my life to realize how I can't just skate past all these important moments of my life. I've got to be open and aware with as much uh, uh, conscious awareness as I can be in each and every moment, because miracles are being revealed all the time, you know, and, and these kind of karmic callings, these answering relationships that are necessary for uh, my growth and for the growth of the other people in my life, too. So that was what I needed, I think, right at that time in my life.
2: You've spoken several times about karmic. What what do you mean by karmic? What is a karmic calling?
3: You know, I I believe that we're, this is going to sound very trippy, maybe to some of your listeners, although most of your listeners are probably accustomed to people talking this way, but I believe that we're essentially sort of formless packages of energy that have these kind of soft feathered edges, and they, they it expands out in front of us into the future and behind us in the past, and is concentrated in this eternal moment where it is occupying our body and where we have, you know, our focused consciousness right now. And so, and those packages of energy are made up of information that we are carrying through eternity where you know time space is a different thing when you're out of out of this biological form so eternity is a now of of infinite limit you know no limits at all and so this package of information that's me all the things that I've ever experienced all the cause and effect I've created or continue to create is uh, is the karma of my ongoing life of my spiritual existence. And so coming to terms with that, being able to reach into this box of time that I'm occupying now and understand my karma and seeing the opportunities for me to correct it, or to burn off bad karma or to create cause and effect that will lead to hopefully the best life I can have. That That's all what my karma is and what all of us have. That's uh, really a shared experience in a very individual way.
2: Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so do you think we pick our karma?
3: Yes, I do. And I think that when you're present in the, in the moment, in the eternal moment right now, you're able to witness what your options are, right? You're able to make choices, which are the, really the probably the most important aspect of this life.
2: Where well, are you going have to, to pick choose up on... to go? choices on the other side of yet another commercial break Robert and I will return to our discussion on the other side you guys stay right there this is Mission Evolution Radio Show on the Exxon Broadcast Network xzbn.net
0: Broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond. You're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network. www.xzbn.net. AVS Media.
4: I am Dr. Carl O'Helvie, founder president by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com.
0: Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the x Radio Show with Rob McConnell, the Science of Magic with Guilda Wiacca, Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen.
2: Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution Radio Show, www.missionevolution.org, bringing the latest tools and information to support the path to enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiaka, and we're speaking with Robert Kopecki, His website, robertkopecki.com. Robert, now, when we're talking about near-death experience, they, they are all characterized by being out of body. Is that correct?
3: Um, yes. I was not aware of having a body as it is uh, at all i don't remember like seeing my hands or walking around i do remember being me naturally and all near-death experiencers do report having experienced this extra-dimensional world through their own eyes so to speak so i was always myself as as well as as part of this greater self i just i didn't seem to have the boundaries of a body You know,
2: this brings up an interesting point, because if we're out of body, where are we thinking and experiencing from?
3: Well, from what aspect of this greater mind that is, that makes up me, you know, from this kind of package of karmic energy? uh, I mean, these are questions that are really hard to wrap your mind around, especially if your mind is part of a larger mind and not, you know... (laughs) It's like trying to grab a hold of a—it's of a, like trying to capture lightning in a bottle, kind of. The Gnostics used to describe our experience here as being separated from the infinite fullness, right? The, the, the infinite effervescent illumination that is heaven, that is God. And we're just this little piece of it. And so this spark is sort of like my mind, you know, on this earth trapped in this body and, and partially generated by this brain, which I feel our brains are also receivers, transmitters, projectors, and are able to gather in to engage into this larger field of
2: divine consciousness. So you're speaking of an evolving brain.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think that a lot of it has to do with how uh, we, have a, we have a misperception problem. We're kind of stuck uh, in a part of our brain in this, ex- in this experience of life as human beings that has a lot to do with those uh, ancient uh, patterns, those ancient, uh, ancient neuroscience, you know. We're kind of stuck in our amygdala where uh, a lot of fear-based and survival-based instincts are governing us. But we are evolving as conscious awareness comes into our field of being I believe that w- that we are expanding, and so if this is the nature of neuroscience now, neuroanatomy. It's this growing field where no matter how f- far you look, how much more information you have, there's always more. It's always opening up into more expansive horizons, and I, I believe that we are in the course of a spiritual evolution here where Our understanding of what our brains are capable of, or how our brains actually work, is expanding dramatically. And so we're becoming more sixth sensory uh, creatures all the time, as I believe we are, extra dimensional beings.
2: You know, we seem to have um, these neurological ruts that we're programmed into, uh, from socialization to media to everything else. Is it a matter of breaking out of these?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's really interesting if you look back. Uh, in the present section of the new book, I explore uh, the the Dhammapada and the Bhagavad Gita and the Gospel of Thomas, the poetry of Rumi, um, the Gnostic Gospel of, of Jesus, I think I mentioned that. And if you look back into Hinduism, for example, uh, in yoga they have what's called samskaras, and samskaras are essentially neural patterns. That's what they're describing thousands of years ago. These kinds of courses that our our thoughts habitually travel into, we might think of them as thought loops, you know, where something will come up, you owe a bill, or you, you have a resentment, you feel like somebody did something bad to you, and that enters into your mind, it clicks into place, and it travels down this kind of canal kind of like fluid and we have to consciously be able to take that stream of thoughts and move it onto new ground you know like shift the direction of those neural pathways and and that's what a lot of uh, neuroscience is suggesting that we can retrain our our brains and the actual functioning of our brains largely through meditation and i'm a big proponent of meditation i think that's where i discovered heaven on earth is meditating really
2: we know we uh, there's a lot of talk lately about heart intelligence as well did you experience becoming more heart-centered after your near-death experiences
3: absolutely Yes, and uh, I think that that's a big part of what uh, this experience of heaven on earth is, in many ways. You know, the the people that you recognize as having that certain something that transcends the material difficulties of this world, are heart based people. And if you if you want to get scientific about it, you can you know you look no further than the HeartMath Science Institute up in Petaluma in California where there's been lots of research done into the actual nature of the the uh, the cognitive nature of the heart you know the the heart is a cognitive organ and is made up of, of, of similar on a similar cellular level as brain matter and so it's not any surprise to people that your heart is determining what you think lots of times so therefore it is a source of thought and I believe that in alignment with your right brain, you know, with uh, your parallel processor as opposed to the left brain, which is like a serial processor, right, that, that is constantly arranging and organizing things. That the right brain, this is, there's a holistic experience of, of a greater consciousness that is then wired through the cognitive aspect of your heart. This is all getting very spiritually technical, isn't it?
2: Wow. it's interesting isn't it yeah well you know the heart uh, actually spins the red blood cells and creating electromagnetic field around the body like a toroidal mm-hmm. field yeah. isn't that the interconnectedness between people
3: yes and that's described also you know in ancient stuff the hindus and stuff have a layers of subtle bodies and and you you can think of it in terms of being a uh a, a or a taurus effect you know just like the uh, like the um, electromagnetic field around the earth. People have these fields. And if you are open to it, naturally, and even if you're not, lots of times you notice it, there's no way around it. You walk into a room and there's a certain energy or vibration, and that's a real thing. And so, yeah, we we expand out. That's kind of my theory of being these kinds of fields of energized karmic data, you know.
2: Well, you know, we talk about, um evolving into the future and yet this hour i've heard you refer back to ancient practices uh what's going on there
3: well the thing that i realized with the, with the um with my uh life review was that this moment is always uh, valid and always has been in all of human understanding so if you look back at the uh thinkers of the past. uh, The people who wrote the Upanishads or the Vedas or uh, um, the early Gospels or the Buddha uh, himself, for example, all of that teaching, all of those observations are perfectly valid and maybe even more valid than a lot of what we are learning now. So, I've found a great deal of uh, inspiration and real usable information by looking into the past as the present. It really is the present. Uh, And in fact, you know, a lot of those people, they didn't have anything else to think about. They may not have even had writing. A lot of it was totally memorized. A lot of this stuff was oral traditions. So volumes of amazing information passed down one person to another by pure memory. You've, You've got to figure that maybe they were smarter certainly smarter than me i could never do that
2: well it seems like there's a certain amount of mastery though that you really need to follow a practice what do you think about the um tendency in the new age community to take a little from here a little from there and never really master any of it and then um name it after yourself
3: uh that's ego you know that's a structure of human ego that's still back to the sort of uh fearful aspect of our brain where the only saber toothed tigers alive are between our ears. <laughs> that's where that's where all of that uh, that kind of um that kind of self aggrandizement or enhancement, self enhancement and stuff comes from. At its heart is what um Aldous Huxley used to call the perennial philosophy, right? Which is these um uh, these aspects of every religion that are the core truths in all of them. And, and uh, you know, through this kind of cultural thing that we're wrestling with, that, that we were talking about, indigenous people, tribal people didn't have, you know, they didn't have it. Uh, you know, we, we, we can come to, we can winnow through all of this different information down to where the core truths really are. The near-death experience, I think, tends to sort of center or focus uh, the survivor in that Space uh, automatically in a way. Uh, so, for me, it, I, it's a it's just a known. It's just a, an innate knowledge as a result of having had those experiences. It doesn't make me any better or worse. It's just my particular path to it.
2: Three near-death experiences. That's quite the path.
3: You don't want to do what I did. I do not. <laughs> the thing about three near-death experiences that I can tell you definitely, Gilda, is don't have them. Try not to have three near-death dare, dare experiences. You know, you can learn a lot about what I learned by reading my book or by reading the books or listening to the stories of other near-death survivors.
2: Well, we're going to have reading to take this ancient stuff, you know. We're going to have to take a break, but on the other side, we're going to try to figure out how to get to heaven without dying. <laughs> Robert and I will be back shortly, so don't you dare go away. You're listening to the Mission Evolution Radio Show on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xnbn.net.
4: WilliamSPeckham.com
2: Welcome back. This is the Mission Evolution radio show, www.missionevolution.org, bringing the latest developments in an evolving world. I'm your host, Willa I always love suggestions from my listeners Email me at info at org to propose a topic or guest. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. Our guest this hour is Robert kopecki His website, robertkopecki.com Robert, we were about to get into the good stuff here, as in, okay, so how do you get to heaven without dying?
3: It's all good stuff. The important <laughs> part is without dying. That's the important part. For me, I think that the the, the lessons that I learned of perspective indicated that there are, These sort of principles are means by which we can get to that place. And so when you think of what heaven is to you, if it's not a given location, right, if it's not one single place, it's more this state of being, then what is the state of being that exists in heaven? Well, to me, it's a nice place. It's always a very nice place full of nice people, angels and the like. And so kindness is a principle that can align us with that experience. It's a truthful place. Right? There's, there's no uh, ulterior motives or manipulation, so honesty is another principle. It's a, an equal place of equality, you know, where everybody is teachable and humble. So humility is a quality that aligns you with heaven. It's an understanding place where nobody's perfect and everybody understands what you're going through. So forgiveness, the ability to spontaneously forgive and uh, to receive forgiveness thank God, is is an aspect of that heavenly experience. Um, Everybody is very empathic, empathetic, and supportive, and understanding. So that compassionate consciousness, compassion is a part of it. And then everybody in heaven will drop everything to give you a hand if necessary. There's a sense of service that's automatic and unconditional with that. So Kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, and service are these principles that can align us with an experience of heaven. It gives us a different perspective on this life. So
2: by your and, definition, um, what is heaven?
3: A state of being, really, a state of being. I, I may very well be, you know, an actual world that we end up on at some point. Um, I think that there are differing worlds for differing levels of experience, different kinds of experience for people, but the thing that is uh, the same for everyone in whatever life we're living, I think, are these experiences of being enfolded in love and having a transcendent connectedness and an uh, understanding of why you're here and and being teachable, you know. It also exists in in stillness, in this moment of presence. Uh, So in the presence part of the, the book, I talk about that too where you know you ground yourself in the now in a way that is uh, comfortable and you where you realize that this is where you can make everything happen right in here right in this moment that we're experiencing and then in my last uh my last experience i was forced back into life i had these kind of spirits sort of say you're not supposed to be here you've got to go back and finish what you were doing and so that's that purpose that we all are here for. We're all it's like our own uh, mission evolution, right? I'm on a mission that only I can fulfill. And it has to do with realizing what I'm good at, what I love in my life, what other people want me to do for them, what I need to do to show up for other people, and that determines my my purpose and my comfort in going through life and realizing that life is happening for me not to me you
2: know so do you think we have um a mission each of us has a mission that's like a part of the larger whole mission
3: i do i don't pretend to know what that all means but i i certainly do that my my third near death experience where i was you know kind of forced back into this life against my will um and i've heard it many times with other near death experiencers that indicates that couldn't indicate anything else to me Except for that, uh, we are each on our own kind of individual uh, mission to overcome this delusion of separateness. You know, to to realize that we are all one with God all the time, so to speak. All apart seamlessly of divine consciousness together, all the same
2: thing. So, if we're standing in that place, in that recognition of that place, are we uh, operating at a different frequency? And is that a frequency people can attune to?
3: Yeah, I believe so, and I think that that's kind of the trick to it. Uh, You will uh, notice if if you uh, if you look at people with what I call angel eyes in the book, you don't label, you don't judge, you don't compare, you don't imagine, start imagining things about them. You can witness this kind of pure spirit uh, coming through them. You know, this kind of pure expression and enter into that sort of um experience with it yourself where there's this kind of seamless uh connection uh, with everybody if that makes
2: sense so so you're kind of talking about just living your life in that way is a big part of the mission
3: yeah and and When you see that kind of expression coming through people, and sometimes somebody might be antagonistic towards you or something, it's not you. It's that they need to be expressing that because they are seeking the path to create this kind of form where they can fit back in. Again, it's kind of, to me, kind of like the the Gnostic Christian aspect of of having a, um, a lightning trapped in a bottle kind of to liberate that spark so that it can rejoin uh, that kind of heavenly fullness. And when you do things, for example, when you follow those principles of kindness and honesty and humility and forgiveness and compassion and service, those things align you with the vibrations that are that, that fullness, that illuminative, divine conscious field of love that is heaven, basically.
2: Do you find that by standing in that place, there's a natural push-pull? In other words, you repel people that aren't really willing to go there yet, and attract the ones that are looking for it.
3: Yes, yeah, is the short answer to that. <laughs> people that are subject to the definitions of their ego, their ego mind, you know, that that are kind of that don't realize that the crazy voice in their head is the is not really who they are. Uh, they're not able. uh, In fact, that aspect of themselves is threatened. And I used to be that way, Gwilda, for many, many years I was like that. Even after my third near-death experience, I still had uh, characteristics in in that way where people would come up to me and just be open and loving and obviously tuned into something that I didn't feel I had, and I felt threatened by it. And so I didn't, I didn't trust them or, you know, I thought they were strange, that kind of thing. Well, now I'm one of those strange people and I find myself talking to people about what we're talking about today and they roll their eyes and they don't believe it. They say, it's all impossible. How could you, how could you possibly imagine all this? And I tell them, well, it starts with us being on a planet in outer space. You know, that's, that's where you're starting here. So. There's nothing that isn't miraculous about this all.
2: How can the information you've gained through your um, near death experiences um, help uh, people evolve as human beings at this time?
3: Well, I mean, that's really what I'm trying to do with this book is, you know, in the first, in the perspective part, to give them those, what I call the rungs on the ladder, that are these principles that you can enjoin. You can't think your way to heaven or to a, this kind of state of expanded consciousness. You have to act your way there in this life. And the same kind of understanding of the eternal moment that we're always living in. And then in the purpose section, I yeah, talk about not just our personal, realizing our personal purpose in life, our personal mission, but also what our collective mission is here. I mean, we are all. We're all called upon to enter into this kind of spiritual sanity that will inform an appropriate stewardship of this beautiful planet as a living being itself that we're all part of. You know, if you stand back from the planet at arm's length, we're clearly all one thing. We are all the life of this planet. And so we have to join together in our hearts, even one person at a time, even just on your own to make these realizations is how this great wave of, uh, of compassionate consciousness is, is starting to overtake the world and we'll be able to kind of return this place to the garden and so to speak because the problems that we're creating right now are self-made obstacles to love and to divine consciousness and with a little spiritual sanity we can see it quite clearly and we know that the answers are spiritual and lie in this kind of direction back towards heaven
2: do you think that we have soul teams here uh, in other words people that came to work with us as a team to to get this accomplished.
3: Yes, I do. And I believe that that's part of our personal purpose in this uh, life, too, is to recognize that, you know. Why am I in your life right now? Uh, Why am I in my wife's life? Or how come we're born into the families we are? There's clearly some kind of arrangement that requires our recognition of the other, the other, in uh, the the Sufis call it the friend, you know, to find the friend, that then you kind of conjoin with and that creates a sense of wholeness in heaven, so to speak. <laughs> this kind of realization of both parts as being the one. So we we well, hold on to the joy and
2: the sorrow of the opposites. It's hard to believe, Robert, but we're actually out of time. Thank you so much for coming on this show. It's been a fascinating hour.
3: Thank you, Gwilda. It's been a lot of fun talking to you.
2: Our guest this hour has been Robert Copecki, the author of How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. You can find him on his website, robertkopecky.com. Remember to join our email family to stay abreast of all the exciting new things we have coming up at missionevolution.org. This has been the Mission Evolution radio show with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, Join us next time as the mission continues, bringing resources and support to an evolving world.